Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And today we're talking about larking. What a lark. Yes. What a lark. Not to be confused with LARPing. Um, Let's go larking. We're talking about long-acting Reversible contraceptioning to make larking work. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, and you and I have been uh, historically evangelists for our larks, our IUDs, our intrauterine devices. Which I so often accidentally call either IEDs or UTIs, (laughs) both of which get a look. Uh, Dude roommate, when his girlfriend was getting an IUD texted me to say that she was getting an IED and I laughed and I laughed and I said I think you mean IUD and he said I think you're wrong I think she's getting an IED like I really hope not it's not gonna go well if it is yeah uh intermittent explosive device is you that what the I stand for you could argue that uh it would prevent pregnancy that's that is true. That, that's one way to go about it. Um, but IUDs are not the only thing we're going to talk about in the first half of the podcast because IUDs are not the only form of long-acting reversible contraception. We've also got to talk about the implant. Uh, and IUDs and birth control implants are considered really the gold standard of birth control. And this is according to both the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics. So doctor people, doctor people in the know. Doctor people in the know for human peoples of all ages. Right, exactly. And it turns out, according to these doctor people in the know, that both IUDs and implants are just as effective as sterilization, but of course they are reversible. And not invasive. I mean, one could argue that it does hurt to get an IUD sometimes, depending. Um, but they're recommended as first-line contraceptives. And since 2002, IUD use among American women has quadrupled. And anecdotally, I've noticed in the past maybe two or so years, um, similar to the mainstreaming of menstruation, kind of the mainstreaming of IUDs. Everybody's talking about IUDs. Oh, mainstreaming of menstruation. Is that what everybody on Twitter is talking about when they do hashtag MSM? <laughs> <laughs> Don't I wish. Don't we wish. Uh, yeah, it turns out that 10 to 11 percent of U.S. women uh, who are on birth control use IUDs, which is up massively from just about one and a half percent in 2002. And it is worth noting, side note, that 40 percent of gynecologists who use contraceptives use IUDs, according to Vox. And over at the Guttmacher Institute, we learned that uh, just 1.3 percent of American women who use birth control use the implant. So how do these magical devices and contraceptive potions work? Well, okay, you go out during a supermoon uh-huh. and you you howl uh, into the phone to your gynecologist and make an appointment <laughs> uh, to get one of these devices, which work extremely well. Um, now, a lot of people say, oh, well, surely they're not that different uh, in their effectiveness from the pill. But you've got to keep in mind that we are all imperfect people. And when we use the pill uh, or the Nuva ring or the patch with typical use as opposed to perfect use, uh, those three things have a 9% failure rate. And the birth control shot has a 6% failure rate. In other words, that's how many people will still get pregnant despite using those methods. So with that in mind, let's hop into how IUDs work. So there are two main types of IUDs. First up, we've got the original, the old copper IUD brand named Paragard. It can last for up to 12 years, 12 years. And this to me is the one that does seem 
like magic because uh, th- there are no hormones involved. They just insert this T-shaped little, little piece of uh, copper into your uterus. But what happens is it essentially bathes our uterine linings in copper ions that create, <laughs> and I'm not exaggerating here, it really creates a sperm-killing force field. Um, although you can expect heavier periods, but in exchange for that, that force field creates just a 0.8% failure rate. I am hoping that it also has like that movie magic sound effect when you have like some kind of force field of whoa. You know, warm, 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 what, warm. Is that, are those the sperm running into the force field? Yeah. Ugh. For sure. And bumping their little heads and being like, never mind, guys, let's get out of here. This also reminds me of those, uh, you know, those metal bracelets that people wear that are sold like in the back of magazines. Yeah, but those don't do anything. I don't think that those create sperm force fields. No, a Paragard copper IUD can last you three presidential terms. I'm, I don't know why I would say anything like that. But I'm just saying three presidential terms. Yeah, two Trump and one Pence, dear God. Uh, oh God. I think my uterus just actually withered up and uh, and died. Next up, we have the hormonal IUDs. Same type of device, T-shaped, uh, T-shaped little little piece of plastic that goes into your uterus. Uh, brand names include the Mirena, which I have. So do I. It lasts five years. There's also on the market now Skyla, which lasts three years. And I just learned there are two others called the Liletta and Kylina. Yeah. <laughs> and y'all, Kylina is spelled K-Y-L-E-E-N-A. And I'm just saying that Kylie Jenner is really missing a branding <laughs> opportunity here. Um, so with these hormonal IUDs, they use a hormonal called levonorgestrel. That thickens your cervical mucus, uh, which is really the first defense as sperm travel through the cervix on their way to the uterus. So they're like, okay, let's try to thicken things up, slow it down. <laughs> and on top of that, it thins out the uterine lining, which makes it super hard for the sperm to travel to and uh, should fertilization happen for implanting to then uh, to then happen. And with those, unlike the copper IUD, you can expect lighter, or in my case, TMI alert, no periods. Yeah, I've actually had both of these, so I can speak to both of them. I started out with the Skyla. I was instructed or advised to get the Skyla because I uh, am teensy tiny inside and also have never given birth. And my gynecologist was like, the smaller one might be better for you. Uh, so I had that for three years and I still got a monthly period, but it was very, very light, very light. Uh, now that I have the Mirena, I no longer get a monthly period, which is awesome. I still do get PMS symptoms. My boobs get real big and sore. Um, Hashtag humble brag. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but yeah, but no period. It's awesome. And what's fabulous is you can really depend on these products. Uh, the Mirena has a failure rate of just 0.2%, and the Skyla failure rate is just 0.4%. Now, let's quickly, though, take a myth-busting detour to clear up a little bit of misinformation, actually a lot of bit of misinformation <laughs> that's out there about IUDs, because this is something anecdotally that I've run into in conversations uh, with more conservative friends of mine in particular, and that I have a feeling a lot of listeners might have seen or heard or, or might just be worried about. Uh, IUDs are not abortifacients. Um, and, and this was something that came up in that Hobby Lobby birth control uh, case that went to the Supreme Court. Uh, IUDs were one of the things that the Hobby, Lo- Hobby Lobby founders did not want to cover because of the misinformation, the uh, fallacy that IUDs are essentially little, little abortion machines inside of us. Yeah, let's get something straight real quick. So pregnancy is when a fertilized egg is implanted, right? But contraceptives prevent fertilization of an egg 
from happening or they prevent the implantation of a fertilized egg, which therefore prevents pregnancy. And it turns out, and we talked about this on a long ago episode, the copper IUDs are actually a fabulous emergency contraceptive. Even when used up to five days after intercourse, those copper IUDs can prevent fertilization and possibly implantation, but they do not disrupt implantation. Therefore, there is a difference there. There is a line between preventing a pregnancy and disrupting a pregnancy. So like Kristen said, the idea that an IUD, whether it's hormonal or copper, can lead to abortion is, again, a complete fallacy. Yeah, and and this information, too, is coming from uh, the American College of Obstetricians and gynecologists. We're not just, we're not just reciting MSNBC headlines here, folks. <laughs> uh, hashtag MSN. I don't know. I'm trying to do a callback. Uh, so that's the situation with IUDs. We also got a shout out the implants. Uh, the brand names are Implanon and Nexplanon. And implants are really what they sound like. They are thin plastic matchstick sized progestin dispensers, essentially. Uh, and progestin is a synthetic form of the hormone progesterone. And these little matchsticks are implanted in your upper arm. They last up to four years. And they work by stopping ovulation and, again, thinning that cervical mucus. Yeah. And so when you use an implant, you can expect spotting in the first six months or a year. Um, but one out of three women who have the implant stop having a period altogether. And, you know, as we've gone along, the failure rate has dropped and dropped and dropped to the point where now if you get an implant, uh, the failure rate is just 0.05%, which is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, uh, it was a while back and I forget what exactly it was about IUDs that you and I were (laughs) raving about as we do on social media. And and there were a few people who helpfully piped up saying, hey, hey, IUDs are actually not the most effective Mm -hmm. um, because, in fact, it's implants, um, which I'm even after all the research we've done for this episode, I've walked away still not quite clear on why implants are as uh rare as they still are today. Um, So if anyone has any intel on that, please give us a shout. And all of this might sound too good to be true, right? I mean, we're just putting these like little matchsticks and (laughs) little T-shaped what's-nots inside (laughs) our bodies and our utes are on lockdown. Yeah, y'all. I mean, yeah, that is that is the delightful truth. Yeah, it's really not too good to be true, which warms my freaking heart because so often I feel like we talk about things that are. (laughs) But um, we're going to cite some research coming out of Colorado that would be fabulous to send to people in your family who perhaps might have quibbles with either birth control itself or contraception um, and providing it to teens or the issue of having birth control and contraceptives paid for. And we're going to have all of these sources over at StuffMomNeverToldYou.com on our source post for this episode so you can, you know, send those links on to your family. So what happened in Colorado is uh, a number of years back – they received a substantial private grant to fund a program, which they launched, offering low-income teens and young women free IUDs. And what happened is that due to this program, between 2009 and 2013, Colorado's teen pregnancy rate dropped 40%. And also, this is important to underline for conservative family members as well, and and people who are uh, opposed to abortion in general, in addition to the teen pregnancy rate dropping 40%, literally plummeting, the abortion rate also dropped 42%. And in addition to that, people who are not too keen on taxpayer dollars going to subsidize single motherhood, Food stamp enrollment also dropped by around 25% between 2009 and 
between 2010 and 2013. Uh, and, and that's just looking at the teen pregnancy rate. Pretty much the same thing happened for single women under 25 who hadn't completed high school, who also qualified for this free IUD program. Um, and money-wise, do you understand the impact back onto taxpayers? Each dollar a state health department spends on long-acting birth control, IUDs or implants, translates to $5.85 of Medicaid savings. And Medicaid covers 75% of teen births. And these are a lot of percentages and numbers that I've all tossed out. Um, but TLDR, these IUDs literally change these young women's lives um, because the highest teen pregnancy rates were in the lowest income communities, as is often the case, not just in Colorado, but across the United States. And the New York Times talked to one woman in particular um, who I believe she was uh, one of the women who was under 25 and hadn't completed high school. And she talked about how due to being able to set and forget this contraception, it allowed her to really set up the life that she wanted for herself. You know, coming out of very disenfranchised circumstances. So Colorado has been a standout example um, of the power of these long-acting reversible contraceptives because, by the way, that, that 40% drop in teen pregnancy rate is uh, far and away faster than any other state's drop in teen pregnancies. Sounds great. I mean... How could anyone not support this? Because it, people get squeamish when it comes to young women and the government subsidizing birth control. Um, Republicans often aren't fans of it. So, yeah. And so this is according to an article about this from Colorado's NPR station, Uh Despite the success of this program, when that private grant money began to run out, the state's GOP ended up blocking a bill to pay for the program with tax money. But uh, they were able to push through $2.5 million in the state budget for it. Yeah, and and I'm just curious to know from uh, the foundation that delivered that first substantial grant that got the program off the ground, if... It's possible that this can happen in other places. Um, but again, this is just a real world example of how these things can really work and not just work for, you know, college educated, employed, middle class white ladies like you and me, Caroline. Um, but y'all, it's not all. <laughs> Candy and roses. I don't actually know that any of it is candy and roses. Although you wait, do- your IUD doesn't get you roses. Uh, no, <laughs> just carnations. <laughs> <laughs> um, but as a lot of people listening who are probably yelling <laughs> at uh, their phone or however they're listening to this podcast right now, all is not perfect when it comes to IUDs and implants because everybody is different. And we're going to get into some of those not-so-fun facts when we come right back from a quick break. Yeah, okay, so you might imagine that when you are inserting something, inserting birth control into your body, whether it is an IUD into your uterus or an implant into your arm, it's not the same as just popping a birth control pill or wearing a patch. These things can hurt. Uh, but we've got to get you the rundown, right, of what happens when you're getting them. So when it comes to an implant, uh, you get an area on your upper arm numbed, and then the insertion is basically like getting a really big shot. Uh, she says casually, pretending as though she does not pass out when she gets shots. Um, and the insertion, though, is generally faster and anecdotally a little less painful than getting it removed because getting it removed involves an incision to remove it from underneath 
your skin. Now, that's pretty straightforward. Uh, and it's not that IUD insertion and removal is not straightforward. There's just several more steps when it comes to an IUD. Yeah, because instead of putting it in your arm, you got to get all the way up to your ute. <laughs> so, and yes, ute is my preferred term for uterus because why not? So the way that... IUDs get inside of us is unfortunately, wouldn't it be cool if we could like swallow them and they're just like, uh, no, I'm in your uterus. No, that's not how our bodies work. (laughs) So gynecologists, well, first you got to go, you got to get in the stirrups. All right. So you're in the stirrups. You're on a horse. You're on a horse. (laughs) You got to find some staples. No, really. You're in the gynecologist uh, room, you're in your stirrups, and the gynecologist is going to use something called a tenaculum clamp to straighten your cervical canal. And they describe the discomfort with this as a pinch. <laughs> yeah, Caroline's laughing because um, it, it it's quite a pinch, okay? It's it's quite a pinch. Um, think about Think about a pap smear. They're not comfortable. Now, double or triple a pap smear. You're getting close. So after they straighten your cervical canal, they do something called sounding the uterus. Sound the uterus! Which is a term (laughs) brand new now to Caroline and me. And sounding the ute is our new battle cry. Yeah, imagine me with a conch shell, but it's actually a uterus. (laughs) Whenever you want to gather nasty women everywhere, (laughs) you sound the ute. Uh, actually sounding the uterus, though, uh, is when the doctor inserts a straw-sized rod into the uterus to measure its size and angle. And this is really good because they got to figure out the the right size for the right-sized IUD and the right place to put it so it stays in place, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so that's how sounding the uterus works, not to be confused with our battle cry of sounding the ute. Oh, okay. <clears throat> well... Uh, so then your doctor will remove the measuring rod and pop in another rod that actually contains the IUD. Kristen's making a face. Girl, I know. Um, it was because of pop in. I think just, just popping it in. Hey, hey guys, just popping in. Hey, just, hey there. Just popping in with. Hey, I'm, uh, I'm Skyla. Good, <laughs> good to meet you. Or Kylina. <laughs> Can't talk right now. Okay. okay. <laughs> no, because I'm screaming. Um, we're scaring people. We'll give you the, the lowdown here in just a second. But so that, that second rod comes on up and it has the IUD in it and the doc positions it in your cervix, sticks it in there and it's hanging out like the kitten in the hang in there poster in, in the, the bottom of your uterus. Right. At your cervix. Just but it does not feel like claws are inside, inside of you. You don't you once it's in there. No. Yeah. No. No. And and it it does it does hurt. Uh, there there is a, a lucky minority um, for whom this procedure feels like nothing more than a pap smear followed by some menstrual cramps. Uh, uh, my friend Samantha is one of those people. She uh, literally went running the same day. Went back to work. Yeah. Kristen's making a face, dude. I know. Um, Samantha. Has always had incredibly severe menstrual cramps. She is used to a higher degree of pain than that with which I was accustomed. And so I warned her about the horrific pain that I went through. And she proceeded to make fun of me probably for about the next year or so. Um, for the middle group of people, uh, it's a moderately painful yeah, that's moderately a, painful process. That's most of us. For most people, it's going to be moderately painful. For the rest of us, including your friend Caroline Irvin here, it is severely painful. Um, I I absolutely don't want to discourage anyone from getting this procedure done. I think it's important to have really effective birth control, and IUDs are incredibly effective, as we have already laid out for you. Um, that being said, I was not one of the lucky ones who had low to moderate pain. I was one of the ones who literally tasted color. Um, I, I developed apparently circumstantial synesthesia during the procedure. It hurt so badly. I threw up. I almost passed out. Uh, I made the bad mistake of taking no pain medicine, not even like a Tylenol. Um, and it, it was it was a nightmare. But the thing is, like they give you the night before you take 
uh, medicine that dilates your cervix so that your cervix is open so they can more easily stick the IUD in. Then ideally you will take some type of pain medication. And if you are highly, highly anxious or scared, they might pres- uh, prescribe you like a low dose of Valium or something along those lines. Um, I will say, and I think this is important to say because I just told this to a friend and colleague the other day, and this is what convinced her after all this time of being afraid to go get this procedure done. When I went to have my Skyla removed so that I could get my Mirena, the removal felt like nothing. I mean, it, it did. It felt like a pap smear. It was uncomfortable, but not bad. And the insertion of the Mirena was a little bit more uncomfortable than a pap smear, but I wasn't, I didn't taste color. We'll just say that. It was, it was really fine. And I don't know if that's because my cervix was like, oh, hey, you, we've seen your kind here before. Um, or if maybe my Tylenol was really kicking in that day, but. I think it's important to acknowledge that, yes, this can be a very painful procedure. It is very helpful to have someone, a partner, a friend, a parent, someone go with you in case you do need to be driven home. But I just really want to hammer home that I don't want you to avoid this procedure just because your pal Caroline threw up the first time. Yeah, and to, and if you're nervous about pain and have a low pain tolerance, just tell your doctor and uh, right. they'll prescribe you something. And if anything... Definitely take the they're going to prescribe you probably regardless, like the horse pill ibuprofen. Yeah. Um, So just take that. And even if you don't have someone who can drive you, uh, I survived both times driving myself. So we can do it because also the great thing is it is discomfort for mm, I mean, in the rest of the day, you're crampy. Um, But then you have birth control for five years if you have the Mirena, which is a presidential term plus a year. (laughs) <laughs> yes, which is good, which is good to know. I think, uh, my Mirena right now, I'm on my second one, and it should last me right up through, uh, the end of Trump. So happy for that. Um, we also though need to talk about possible side effects after you, you get this thing implanted, whether it's the IUD or the implant. Um, and this info is coming from Planned Parenthood, Vox, and again, uh, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. So typically with IUDs, the main side effects you're going to have are some unpredictable menstrual spotting and bleeding at first. Um, I experienced this. I'll just leave it at that. Um, you may also experience headaches, nausea, depression, and breast tenderness. Uh, speaking to the depression aspects, IUDs uh, were implicated in a recent study that went viral about uh, birth control and female mental health. And uh, it was particularly like strongly correlated um, to women getting IUDs and then uh, later getting on antidepressants. Again, there's some correlation causation issue there, um, but just something to keep in mind uh, if you struggle with mental health, that it's just something, again, to just talk to your doctor about. Right. And again, personal experience, obviously my experience is not everyone's, but um, I had been on the pill, uh, specifically Yaz or Yasmin, for years, about a decade before I went on an IUD. And I never had, never Never had PMS with the pill, and I now on an IUD, I do get PMS. And that's, again, that's not going to be the same for everyone. But I noticed that that was something that changed for me. So things on an IUD versus the pill versus no birth control whatsoever, they're not necessarily going to be the same. And uh, with implants, the major side effects cited include change in sex drive. Uh, you might see a discoloring or scarring of the skin over the implant site. Uh, you may also experience headache, infections or pain in the arm, although that's very rare, uh, nausea, sore breasts, weight gain. I mean, honestly, these are side effects that you see with a lot of hormonal birth controls. Um and there are some worst case scenarios, though, that I know some stuff Mom Never Told You listeners have experienced because you all have told us about them, uh, specifically IUD expulsion. And this is probably the most common uh, scary story that you hear when you're you know, talking to, to friends about IUDs because for about three to five percent of people who get them in the first year, 
your uterus might be like, Haha, nah, girl, <laughs> Kylie, go back to, to Cabo. Um, no, they don't live in Cabo. Calabasas, Calabasas. I know that and I'm ashamed of that. Um, but that's likely because the gynecologist didn't insert it correctly. Um, if you're concerned about this, though, watch out for cramping. Um, because that that might be a sign that your your uterus is is not happy, and there are also in much rarer cases perforations that can happen. Um, your IUD can actually puncture your uterine wall, which could potentially harm your bladder and intestine, and if left untreated, might lead to hemorrhaging and sepsis. But that sounds awful. It is awful. Take heart. It is very 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 rare. Um, it is about. expulsion rate chance with that. And these are just more, even more reason to make sure that you stick to your follow-up appointment. Usually your gynecologist will request that you come in about a month after the fact to just make sure that everything is where he or she left it, basically. That's how my doctor put it. Um, uh, another worst case scenario involves a slightly elevated risk of pelvic inflammatory disease in the first 20 days after you get your IUD inserted. Um, and when it comes to implants, incorrect insertion can cause discomfort and ineffectiveness. And in the very, very, very super rare case of pregnancy with one of these long acting reversible contraceptives, you do have an elevated risk of ectopic pregnancy. When I put the call out on Twitter, Twitter to let people know that we were going to be talking about this and they were welcome to send us their questions or concerns. We did have one listener who said, yes, I was one of those people who had to endure an ectopic pregnancy. Uh, So the risk is there. And again, it is very small. Uh, Now, in terms of who shouldn't get one of these, uh, especially for IUDs, people with untreated STIs, no, because insertion can promote a uh, pelvic infection. Also, a good gynecologist is probably going to make sure that you're tested before going anywhere near insertion. Uh, speaking of pelvic infection, not surprisingly, if you have a recent history with those, not going to be a good idea. Uh, people with untreated cervical or uterine cancers. And with the implants, uh, people with breast cancer are advised against getting them. And speaking of STIs, it is worth emphasizing that even though uh, it the, these, these wonderful things dr- dramatically reduce our chances of getting pregnant, they do nothing to reduce your chance of contracting STIs. So, you know... Don't throw away your condoms, folks. And we should also mention uh, when it comes to having sex with IUDs that uh, at the bottom of these little T-shaped devices, there are some strings that hang down, just little tiny strings. Um, and if your sexual partner is like, I think I can feel the string, that's probably okay. It's it's not terribly surprising, especially for uh, digital penetration. Um, but... You might also want to monitor your string because if you can't feel them at all, because you can actually um, yourself uh, reach up and and probably feel them. And if you can't feel them at all after the first few months, you might just want to call your doctor to see if you need to come in uh, just to ensure that it's hasn't been knocked out of place or that it's been um, expelled. I've actually called my doctor before um, because uh, a partner way back when was concerned about feeling the strings, um, and it, it was fi- it was totally fine. You know, just always pick up the call, pick up the call, and phone your <laughs> nurse practitioner. Perfect. So now that we know what these things are today and how they work and how effective they are, it's time to get into the more fascinating story of how they came to be. And we're going to do that when we come right back from a quick break. into uh, this history of the IUD specifically, uh, we want to go ahead and give a shout out to Chicago Takashita, 
whose dissertation, Negotiating Acceptability of the IUD, Contraceptive Technology, Women's Bodies, and Reproductive Politics, uh, is a major source. It's a very, well, as you might imagine, it's a very in-depth dissertation. Does that even need to be said? It's full of chock, it's chock full of great information. Good job. Um, but basically, IUDs have been around for a really long time. But as we kind of touched on at the top of the podcast, American women are really just now coming around to it. It's much more common overseas in Europe than it is here. And a lot of that has to do with some horror stories that we have and some terrible things that we endured in the 1970s thanks to this thing called the Dalcon Shield. Um, you also have issues in the way hurdles like insurance, not covering this device, which can be $400 or more, and just general lack of awareness. I mean, I spoke with some friends after I got my IUD inserted who were still under the impression that IUDs were as dangerous as the Dalcon Shield was back mid-century. And so we will get to that, but let's take a trip down IUD memory lane first. Yeah, so uh just... Important to note, Europeans, by no means the first folks to figure out that, that putting a physical barrier between your vaginal canal and your uterus can prevent pregnancy. Since ancient civilization, we have used pessaries, we have used cervical caps, we have used all sorts of, of things similar to IUDs um, with, with a similar kind of strategy in mind of really blocking the sperm from... Reaching dim eggs. Uh, <laughs> but in the late 1920s, even though a doctor in Japan, Tenrei Ota, was doing the exact same kind of research and development at the exact same time, German Ernst Grafenberg, he of G-Spot fame. Yeah, I always forget that, even though we talked about him extensively in our clitoracy episode. Old Ernst. Uh, so Dr. Ernst is uh, Dr. G. Cited as the inventor of the modern IUD, um, and his was a small ring made of silkworm gut and coiled silver that was inserted into the uterus. And the cultural climate in Germany was perfect for... Uh, Grafenberg to get his proto-IUD on the map because a sex reform movement was afoot and he presented, as a male doctor, his device as scientific. <laughs> Hashtag credibility. <laughs> uh, but they weren't very effective. Uh, and they caused a lot of infections. Um, turns out silkworm gut, not perfect, um, and once we get into the 1960s, uh, interest in IUDs is reignited thanks to the Population Council, which had been established in 1952. Um, and they do remain the number one developer of IUD and LARC technology. They were actually initially looking for a pregnancy vaccine and considered the pill too expensive and user-dependent, but there are layers there to that idea of it being too user-dependent. Yeah, so uh, essentially what's happening um, are uh, mostly a lot of white dudes uh, making a lot of classist and racist assumptions about how poor women, especially women of color, both in the United States and in developing countries, simply cannot be trusted with their own reproductive health. So they are more fans of the set it and forget it type of contraception. Um, and I didn't do much deep digging on the population council. Uh, but in general, they I mean, their name kind of says it all, really. They uh, are, I want to say, an NGO still around um, whose mission is population control, <laughs> you know, and, and especially focusing in on uh, developing countries and low income areas. Uh, this does start to intersect, especially around this time um, with eugenicist philosophy um, and, again, just a lot of classism and racism. Uh, but nonetheless, they were the pioneers, the scientific pioneers of the IUD. And in 1962, they hosted the first international conference on the IUD 
I bet they had great swag. Oh, the goodie bags. Out of this world. Full of silkworm gut. (laughs) Ew, how do I get through all... What's on the bottom? It's just cigars. Because it's just all... It's all dudes. Really, I mean, like, in this paper, at least, I only read about dudes doing this scientific research. And that's, like, uh, another little question mark in my brain of, mm, you know... What what is what is really what is really the intent? Uh, but anyway, we'll get we'll get into the more feminist lens that people have looked at this R and D through in just a second. Yeah, but a question mark was one was not one of the shapes of early IUDs. But there were several others. Uh, early IUDs uh, were rings, bows, loops, coils. All of these different shapes were patented. Uh, and you even had this crazy straw-looking thing, uh, this loop that became the go-to. Yeah, the Lippa's loop became the what they thought was going to be the key to population control in developing nations in particular. And... Listeners, imagine in your head how the IUD today is very small and it's T-shaped. Uh, the the lipis loop is just a, this zigzag back and forth and back and forth that looks. It's really there to confuse the sperm more than anything. <laughs> I think so. It just look, it looks incredibly painful. Um, but but uh, and and I'm so glad that it is not the current design. In 1969, though, a population council affiliated Chilean scientist Jack Zipper, who has the best name in this podcast so far. Jack the Zipper. <laughs> Jack the Zipper. <laughs> Old Jack the Zipper discovers the anti-fertility effects of copper. He was doing some research on fertility in rabbits and realizes, hmm, this, this copper is a really effective contraceptive. Hello, proto-paragard copper IUD. Whom. That's the force field again. The sperm force field. Yeah. Um, but when you hit the 1970s and 80s, there's a bit of a drop off um, because of the nightmare that was the Dalcon Shield disaster. So this scary looking thing, which can look like a cartoon eye with eyelashes. It can also look like a bacterium or some kind of fishing lure, depending on which way you hold it. Um, it was used by nearly 3 million women, and not only did it sometimes fail to prevent pregnancy, but it injured about 200,000 women, it caused infertility, and 15 women died. 15 women died in the process of miscarriage because of this Dalcon shield. And the thing is, I had known about the Dalcon Shield by name for years, but researching for this episode was the first time I actually saw it. And seeing is believing, y'all. Google Dalcon Shield, D-A-L-K-O-N, because how, uh, it just, it just looks very, it just looks very painful because there are these little like protrusions yeah. off of it and it just looks like it would cut you up. Um, but surprisingly, it wasn't this frightening looking evil eye design uh, that caused all the problems, but likelier the thread that served as just <laughs> a bacterial infection canal um, instigating all of these pelvic infections that led to so many problems as a result especially in the 80s, as uh, the company that released the Dalcon Shield was just flooded with lawsuits. Oh, yeah. Insurance companies just moonwalk away. They're like, <laughs> nope, we are out of the IUD game. But that's the U.S. Yeah. Um, overseas, same game was not happening. Uh, China, for instance, in 1979 establishes its one-child policy. So basically the, the propaganda and the policies that were being pushed were like, hey, you've had one child, go with an IUD. Oh, hey, you've had two, be sterilized. So that's that. Right. Um, but there was, you know, as all of this Dalcon Shield nightmare was happening in the U.S., um, China was definitely on the forefront of developing the IUD, which in 1979, when the program was kicked off, they had gone to the Population Council and had been like, hey, what are y'all working on? 
we need something. Oh, we got this IUD thing. So it's it was fascinating to see how all of this globally is starting to weave together. Um, back to the United States in 1988, after a couple years where IUDs were nowhere to be found in the U.S., the Paragard, the copper IUD, was made available to American uteruses once again. Um, and in the 90s, the Mirena, which Caroline and I have, was developed in Europe and became super popular quite quickly. Um, 23% of French women on birth control today, for instance, use IUDs. Uh, 27% of Norwegian women on birth control use IUDs. All of this to say that IUD use in the U.S. Um, at, what, 10 11% right now is still so much lower than uh, use abroad. Well, yeah, and I mean, the FDA was watching for about a decade what was happening in Europe, essentially making sure that there was not going to be another Dalcon Shield nightmare uh, of death and injury and unexpected pregnancy. And so I was actually ignorant of that fact that the Mirena and its like weren't even available until the new millennium. Uh, I kind of just had thought that they had been around for, and they have been around for longer, but I mean available, especially with insurance. Yeah, I mean, and and for a while, too, even when they were made available again, um, most doctors wouldn't allow women who had been pregnant before to use them. Um, there were all sorts of concerns, understandably, you know, because 15 women died, hello. Um, but there were a lot of concerns around uh, whether they were truly safe. Um, mm-hmm. And it turns out, yes, they are. Um, but interestingly, as we learned from a Time Magazine piece, when the Mirena was first marketed in the U.S., it was targeted at moms, basically being like, we know y'all don't have time to take a pill every day. You're busy with your kids. Well, yeah, I mean, there is that side of it of like, you don't have time to worry about your birth control, but there's also the side of like, we are specifically marketing to moms over single women. We don't want to promote uh, this birth control to single women and have people just willy-nilly ditch condoms, for instance, or think that they can just have unproductive sex forever. Unproductive, se- unproductive sex? Yeah. As in not having kids sex? Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's the case today. I mean, thankfully, like people are... People are all about IUDs. And I wonder if that is at all correlated to like the growing population of female OBGYNs. Um, just just a thought. If anyone knows, let me know. Um, so what's not to love about all of this technology? Well, there are some feminist scholars who have interpreted their development and use, particularly as it relates to the Population Council and uh, their implementation in developing countries and promotion among poor women in particular as coercive and even violent. Yeah, we read a lot in the dissertation about sort of this history of forcing women to be either sterilized or to have some type of contraceptive to limit expanding families, whereas here in the West, we tend to view it as a way to control our lives uh, in a lot of countries, uh, regions like Indonesia or India. Um, it's viewed more as almost punishment uh, as a way to control women. Well, China. Hello. Yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. that's like state propaganda right there. I mean, um, they refer to it as state imposed fertility control, where mm-hmm. it's not, <laughs> you know, white women like jumping up fists in the air, choosing our choice, uh, but rather the government choosing your choice for you. And again, going back to those, you know, classist and racist elements of, you know, let us let us choose on your behalf, this set it and forget it kind of thing, uh, because you probably don't have the wherewithal to do for yourself. Um, so and, and this was an area, these these biopolitics Feminist biopolitics were something that I hadn't read before and um, am curious to read more about also because a lot of that information um, and that perspective was coming out more in the late 90s, early 2000s. And I'm curious to know whether there is uh, still a similar sentiment now that IUDs are more common and more affordable 
um, in in the U.S. in particular. But there are also still a lot of barriers to use, um, especially in developing countries, uh, even though it is recommended by the World Health Organization uh, because increasing IUD use could be a major boon to maternal health and, of course, managed population control. Um, still, as of 2015, according to NPR, 61% of women in developing nations have unmet family planning needs. Right. And so many of them, more than 50 percent, get pregnant um, within two years of having the previous child. It, the important aspect of that stat being and many do not want to. Many want to wait. And the World Health Organization does urge people in general to wait uh, to, I guess, let their bodies recover, essentially, especially if you've had a traumatic childbirth. Um, but some of the hurdles that people are up against are things like menstrual taboos and very real sterilization fears, because we do have this history globally um, of forcing women, particularly women of color, to be sterilized. And Jill Filipovic, a couple of years ago, wrote a terrific in-depth piece for Cosmopolitan about the situation of uh, or the challenge, really, of uh, getting IUD access to women in rural India because they tend to opt for the pill over the Paragard when it comes to uh, IUDs being sent you know, through nonprofits and NGOs. It's usually going to be the copper IUD because it is much cheaper than the hormonal version, as you might imagine. Um, and in these areas, the pill is chosen because with the Paragard, remember that the, one of the major side effects is heavier periods. And if you are in a developing area, you might also already have entrenched menstrual taboos. But also, I mean, if you're on your period because of that, you can't do anything, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, it like puts you out of commission and they literally cannot afford to do that. Right, exactly. And you've also got the issue of the difficulty of insertion, um, even right after childbirth. And, you know, another benefit, of course, of the Paragard is it can remain in for so much longer. So you, there, there isn't the every three years or every five years even, there's that nice 10 to 12 year stretch where you can just, I mean, you can just set it and forget it not to sound glib. Um, but there have there have been developments. Um, there is this new easy to use quote unquote IUD inserter developed by Population Services International, which I feel like these names need to be improved. Doesn't Population Services International sound like something out of 1984? I think they're related to the the old school Population Council. Well, all right then. Um, but this new inserter could make. IUDs more accessible and on top of that, lower the chances of getting IUD related infections. Um, the expulsion rates are still comparable to those in the U.S. right now. Yeah. And those easy to use inserters are super important in those areas where you aren't going to have just, you know, a buffet of trained obstetricians and perfectly sterilized areas and instruments to use. Um, and apparently the existing inserter that tends to come with a Mirena or Paragard is really flimsy and kind of hard to use sure. if you don't really know what you're doing. Yeah, it's not as long as as would be ideal. And they mentioned, I think this was still from Filipovic's article, right? Mm-hmm. She she mentions how um, right now in in the study, uh, when IUDs are inserted with these these new inserters that have been developed, um, the doctors leave the strings long still after childbirth and want you to come back like a week or two later. But even that is still a barrier to overcome. Researchers and developers still want to get it down to no, we just we do just set it. And forget it and that we do insert it and you go back to your life, you go back to your village or wherever, and you don't have to worry about coming back to find a healthcare provider to trim those IUD strings. And most often that does happen uh, right after childbirth. You know, they come in to have the baby and uh, like a lot of women choose to then get a tubal ligation, mm-hmm. for instance, um, you can then get an IUD inserted. Um, but here in the U.S., even 
there's still some mistrust around IUDs. Of course, they're horror stories um, because of, you know, people we might know or have heard about who have had to deal with those very painful uh, expulsions or even rare perforations. Um, and since, though, the election of Trump and even more troublingly, uh, former Indiana Governor Mike Pence as vice president, IUD searches have skyrocketed, skyrocketed, my friends. I am not uh, that is not hyperbole. You can see it. You can see it in the Google um, because people are worried about the repeal of the Affordable Care Act and the possible repeal of Roe v. Wade and out of pocket hormonal IUDs can run you $800. Um, so there have been a, a lot of women Ever since that happened, ever since November 9th, who have said, get an IUD. Yeah, well, I mean, I posted the question on Facebook of how many of you out there are thinking about this, are in line or on the phone with your doctor to get your contraceptives of whatever kind taken care of. And I mean, the response was overwhelming from women of all ages and backgrounds saying, I'm on the phone with my doctor. I'm calling. I'm going to Planned Parenthood. One woman literally responded from her doctor's waiting room saying that she was getting it taken care of. Yeah. So, I mean, this this conversation is more relevant than ever before. Um, and uh, even though we were only able to offer just a, a tiny snapshot of a more global perspective, uh it does go to show how, again, reproductive rights are a very intersectional issue and affect different people in, in such different ways in the same way as birth control does. Um, so perspectives that you can share, insights, questions, send them to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. You can tweet us at MomStuffPodcast. You can directly tweet and follow uh, me at Kristen Conger, and me Caroline Irvin at the Caroline Irv. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, actually, to be honest, we just have one letter to read, and it's from Allison. So Allison saw on social media that Kristen and I were gearing up to do an episode on IUDs, and she, a fellow IUD evangelist, had to write in. Uh, she says, I'm not a medical professional or IUD salesperson. However, I am the owner of one set of lady parts, my lady parts. Uh, Allison writes, when I started college, I was prescribed the pill for irregular menses since back in my day, you couldn't get it covered if it was just for stopping babies. And to make a long story short, the hormonal birth control really made me sick. Serious depression, weight gain, mood swings. Oh, and debilitating cramps. One time, I remember handing my roommate my car keys while I curled up on my floor after class, telling her to just take the car where she needed to go. I can't sit up. I took it four more years because, I don't know, doctors are smarter than me. I was not living my empowered truth. Eventually, I eschewed hormonal birth control altogether because my side effects were so bad. But I met an Englishman in 2009, and I needed to get birth control stat. After talking to my amazing lady OBGYN who sets my heart alight and doing a little research, I told her I wanted to try the IUD, even though I am Nella Paris. I wanted to try the IUD for a variety of reasons, but most importantly, I wanted something effective, easy to use, and easy to reverse. Oh, that, and it was covered by my insurance, 100%. Only my regular appointment copay would apply. This was before the legislation for covering birth control was passed. So my doctor and I talked about it, and because I had a bad reaction to hormonal birth control, she recommended doing the Paragard, the copper IUD. We giggled when she said that she liked that one because she likes to imagine the heads of the sperm popping off when met with the inhospitable uterine environment the copper creates. Did I mention she sets my heart alight? Because she does. We talked about how it would work, that it would be good for 10 years, and if I wanted to take it out, she could do that any time. Just come in. When I've told friends about the insertion process, I've described it like sticking a straw in your hoo-ha, then shooting a dart into your uterus. But it didn't really hurt. I did have cramping and a tinge of regret that I only took 400 milligrams of ibuprofen. The weirdest thing was I got dizzy, uh, and the nurse brought me an apple juice box that they kept there for the kids and let me lie down for 10 minutes. 
I advocated the IUD to my best girlfriend after she had two children 14 months apart. Her, She and her husband decided their family was complete, at least for now. She wanted to know about my experience, and she talked to her OBGYN and decided the Mirena was for her. I will pretty much talk to anyone about my IUD if they ask, uh, and have called out IUD deniers for just being lying liars, like those who say it's an abortifacient. Anyway, Englishman and I got hitched in 2014, and I have four more years of effective, safe, and fabulous birth control that I can decide at any time to keep or take out. Having children is not something we want to do, maybe ever, and that is cool with my paragard because she's just in there chilling, popping the heads off sperm. Thank you so much for listening to my story time. I've listened to you both for a few years and appreciate so much your candor and the important topics you discuss. Please let me know if you have any questions I can answer. And Allison signs her letter, Unicorns and Empowerment. And what a fabulous way to end a letter. Thank you so much, Allison. And thanks to everyone who's written in to us. Momstuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And speaking of email, uh, y'all, in light of the post-election hot mess happening, I've started a little tiny letter. A little tiny letter. How uh, redundant is that? Uh, if you'd like to check it out and subscribe, it's called the Do Better Digest. And you can subscribe at tinyletter.com slash Kristen, which is C-R-I-S-T-E-N. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and stuff Mom Never Told You podcasts with our sources, so you can learn even more about birth control and reproductive rights, head on over to StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 